Good morning. I invite you guys to open your Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter 2. Last week we, we began to see the story of, of Jonah and, and believe, recognize someone that we could really identify with, a man imperfect, a man disobedient, even rebellious, a man in need of salvation, and where we left him last week was being thrown into the depths of the ocean in hopelessness, despair, and disobedience. So, it's exciting that when we see the length that God went to to discipline Jonah to bring him to this point of confounding his rebellion, God goes to an even greater measure to bring about a restoration of Jonah that is amazing. The reality is that the restoration of Jonah, as great as it is, as supernatural as it is, is ultimately no different than the restoration that you and I experience when we turn from sin and back to God. It's no different than the salvation that any believer experiences when they turn from darkness to light. Martin Lloyd-Jones, reflecting on the problem of evil, once helpfully explained God's purpose in affliction this way. He said, Suffering teaches us who we really are and who God really is. Suffering teaches you what you're made of. It teaches you where your hope is. But ultimately, through the providence and sovereignty of God, it will teach you if you'll learn who God really is. You see, the reality is that each one of us has a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought to. And sadly, we have a lower opinion of God than many of us would even admit. And so whether we suffer because of disobedience, which leads to disciplines, or we encounter trials for the sake of becoming more pure, as God graciously sends them our way, in either situation, when we suffer, we get to see what we're made of. We get to see what's in our heart. Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the overflow of the affliction, the heart demonstrates where your hope is. Is it in this life? Is it in this world? Is it in your wisdom? Is it in your circumstances? Are you trusting in hope and stance? Or have you learned true joy, abiding joy, and hope in God? You see, the heart is not like Switzerland. It's not neutral. You're either being softened by biblical truth or you are being hardened by the sinfulness of sin. You can't stay neutral. You're going one direction or the other. Joni Erickson Tata says it this way, When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, He is forcing you to decide on an issue you've been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue trying to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and my own sinful desire? Or am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sin? In short, am I going to be like Christ? He provides the suffering, but the choice is yours. It's profound and absolutely correct. It's true. You see, our affliction reveals to us who we are. If you're wondering who you are, really, truly, it's not the way that you are in those great moments, those pinnacle moments of your life where it seems as though everything is going well. The person you are is the one that comes out when you're crushed. The person you are is the one that comes out in those mundane elements of life where it seems as though no one is watching except God alone and you are aware of your heart, your hope, and your trust. That's who you are. And see, the work that God is doing in sanctifying us through affliction is to cause us to be like Jesus if we'll be trained by it, if we'll learn from it. And what we see in this story of restoration is God's sovereign and supreme 
work in the life of Jonah. We see a demonstration, something that we can identify with, of how God, in this fantastic way, brings Jonah from the point of rebellion to restoration. And we can identify ourselves in this story, I believe. You see, Jonah had done everything he could to thwart the will of God. He had done everything in his own strength to go the way that he wanted to go away from God's will. And the thing that's fascinating to me is that Jonah was not dealing with a theological issue. It wasn't that he did not understand the kindness and the sovereignty and the supremacy of God. That was not the issue that Jonah was dealing with. It was a simple issue. It was obedience. It was true yielded will, a true faith abiding in God. See, what God is doing in the life of Jonah, as we're going to see today, is taking something that was knowledge merely in the head, and He's going to drive it home to His heart. He's going to go from having a knowledge about God's sovereignty, a knowledge about God's compassion, a knowledge about God's love, that is simply book knowledge, and He's going to make it experiential. He's going to make it first-person oriented. He's going to know, Jonah is going to know and be transformed by God and made fit as a vessel to bring compassion and salvation to Nineveh. What's fascinating is the way that God uses this affliction in Jonah and superintends even over Jonah's rebellion to bring about His glory in Jonah's restoration and to make Jonah the type of man who was able to rightly go and speak to this people of Nineveh and see this massive salvation that takes place. And we'll see that salvation in Nineveh next week. But we want to understand, how does Jonah go from this position of rebellion to restoration to finally saying those profound words, salvation is of the Lord? Let's read these verses again. We are going to be starting in chapter 1 and verse 17, and then read down to the end of the second chapter. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard being idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Let's pray. Father, when we come to this passage, it is incredible. The type of prayer that we see here, the prayer that Jonah prayed in the first chapter was was not even really lip service to you. It was empty. And yet there's something that you have done to change this man profoundly so that when he prays, there's a a faith that was absent before. There's a trust in you that was probably never evident in his life to the degree that it is in this moment. From the depths of the greatest darkness, Jonah was able to ascend these great heights of hope and worship. Father, I trust that there are 
some here today who are hearing this that are experiencing this destructive nature of disobedience. They are perhaps walking faithfully with you and still encountering trials and they are under, not understanding why. Lord, whether it be discipline or it be merely for sanctification, Lord, your work is being done. Lord, we pray that as we go through this passage, I pray that there would be hope granted. The same kind of hope that was experienced by Jonah as he turned from his sin and his circumstances and began to place his faith and his hope in you. And his eyes and his entire heart were lifted up to you. Lord, I pray that we as a people would be greatly encouraged this morning and that our worship and our lives of worship would be worthy of the salvation that you have granted to us. Amen. So as we go through this passage, the outline for us this morning is, is simple. In Jonah 1.17-2.10, we see that the wisdom of power of God, we see the wisdom and power of God on display as He prepares this unusual and inescapable Notice that inescapable affliction. And in it, God leads Jonah from this darkness to rescue. We see the rescue of Jonah. We see the repentance of Jonah. We see the restoration of Jonah. Those three points are in your outline, in your bulletin. You can use those to help navigate this passage of Scripture. And the first first point, the rescue of Jonah, we see in chapter 1, verse 17. Last week, we, we got through the first 16 verses, and you may have wondered why I stopped at the 17th verse. The reason I did is because it really fits better with the context of the second chapter. It's also easier to explain these, these things that are happening and, and what's changing here. But Jonah, he goes into the, the belly of this, this great fish, and he's there three days and three nights. But the, the thing about it is that when you have heard this story, if I, you know, when I told you we were going to go through Jonah, that this verse is probably the one that came to mind first. Uh, it's the, if you look at the front of your bulletin, there's that big fish. It's you know, a whale. Uh, the, the Sunday school stories you may have seen as a kid, the children's Bibles, whatever we're familiar with, it's, it's usually that big old whale. And the rest of the story of Jonah, we don't remember. Uh, we, we know that he got swallowed by a fish, and that's the story. But the funny thing is that the story, in this story, the whale is of absolutely little consequence. It's not even a, if, if it is a whale, it's a great fish, we know that. But the, the, the fish, the whale, whatever it may have been that swallowed Jonah is not the point of the story. But it's the thing that we reflect on, and honestly, it's the thing that we need to deal with when we come to this passage, because it's something that's just uh, ridiculed by the world. It's not believed. It's uh, disbelieved. The secular or uh, essentially liberal critics of Scripture look at the story of Jonah and say it's impossible. And therefore they deny the validity of the Scripture. They deny the validity of the story. And they essentially have closed off their hearts to the work that God has done in this book. But you know, the reality of the book of Jonah is this is not just a singular miracle, this preservation in the belly of the fish, but it's one of many. We already noticed that the God who prepared this fish also in the first chapter prepared a wind and a wave to upset the ship that Jonah was on. And in chapter 4, we're going to see that God is going to send a weed and a worm and a wind to destroy Jonah's conception of how God works and what God is doing in the life of the salvation of Nineveh. This book is filled with the miraculous. It's filled with the superintendence of God. It is obvious throughout that God is sovereignly working and appointing all of these things to a particular purpose, which is to teach Jonah and to teach us. What's fascinating is that Jonah is disobedient, but the fish is not. The fish was prepared by God, and it, this inanimate object, and in essence, this, this fish with no soul goes exactly where God sent it, does exactly what it was commanded to do by God, and becomes a source of rescue 
for Jonah. So let's look at some of the things that critics have said about this idea of a fish swallowing Jonah. I think it's really laughable, but here are some of the things that they've said to try to explain the, the story of Jonah. Uh, one, of the, one of the ideas that a liberal commentator gives is that Jonah was uh, thrown overboard when the sea was rocking and the waves were billowing over the side of the ship. This uh, group of sailors picked up Jonah, threw him overboard, and he landed on top of a floating whale carcass and was there for a few days. Another says that they found a port they were able to get away from the storm and were able to dock and the end there was called the whale so they dropped off Jonah and left him. Perhaps one of the more silly ones is that uh, they had a dinghy, a little small craft tied to the back of the boat and they were able to put Jonah into the little boat and leave him and uh, the name of the dinghy was uh, the fish. All of these are silly. John MacArthur Riley says that some of these critics have a harder time swallowing Jonah than the fish did. Faith laughs at skepticism. What's, what's easier to believe? Well, what are some things we can look at in nature that would help us to say, is, there, is it possible, is there a fish that is alive that could swallow Jonah? Well, there are sperm whales uh, that grow as, far, as, as wide or as long as 70 feet and have an esophagus that's 20 feet wide, which would certainly be able to hold a man like Jonah. There's an apocryphal story from the 1900s of a group of whalers that were laboring to clear the stomach of a whale, and they discovered something doubled up in the organs or in the, the stomach pouches inside of the whale, and there they found one of their missing mates, a sailor who had been swallowed whole. They were able to cut him out and revive him with seawater and he was alive still. That would have been quite a shocking event for him and certainly a surprise for his shipmates. In 2015, a man was swallowed whole by a great white shark. I don't think he made it though. There are uh, some marine scientists from SeaWorld who hypothesized that if there was anything, it was probably a shark that swallowed, a great white shark that swallowed Jonah. But ultimately, those things aren't really that important, are they? Because what we know is that this actually happened, and the reason we know it happened is because Jesus said it happened. In Matthew twelve thirty nine to verse 40, 41, Jesus pointed back to this miracle of the preservation of Jonah, and he spoke of his own deliverance. He said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus accepted and pointed to as a proof of the validity of his ministry and the purpose of God in Jesus' own crucifixion, burial, and an eventual resurrection, he pointed back to the story of Jonah. Ultimately, the deeper work that God is doing in this has nothing to do with the fish, but everything to do with the heart of Jonah. It's not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace that God is working. In the book This book records a miracle characterized by restoration, not merely preservation. So when we look at this downward progression of Jonah, we we can identify with some of the things that brought him there. When we are in disobedience, we forget God and we forget His mercies. When we are walking in disobedience, we follow our feelings and we're no longer thinking correctly. We're no longer being logical. And ultimately, just like Jonah, when we are... Walking in disobedience, we feel forsaken and imagine that we are beyond restoration. Think of it. Jonah was thrown into the deeps of the ocean and it took three days before he finally began to pray. That's amazing. How long would it take you to pray? I think most of us at that point would be crying in despair, but for Jonah, it took three days. Three days for him to be rightly prepared, rightly repentant, and to turn from his sin back to God. This is the thing we need to note in this great miraculous preservation. Even if we're forgetful, even if we're unfaithful, 
God remembers His promises. God is faithful. And so the, the key verse, again, to this book, to this chapter, is chapter uh, 2 in verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. And the, the thing that we want to look at is, what is it that took Jonah from this place where he was willing to be thrown overboard, willing to be swallowed and stay in the belly of the fish for three days without praying? What is it that took him from that place to the point where he cried out, salvation is of the Lord? was restored and ultimately redeemed, thrown out or vomited out by this great fish. Well, let's look at the, the way that this takes place, and we're going to see it in the first nine verses of the second chapter. And I want to look at the repentance now of Jonah. And obviously, what's the first step of repentance for any one of us? Right? We have to recognize that we need to change. We need to recognize that we have wronged God. We have to recognize our condition. Again, just think about this. This really happened. This man was really swallowed by this great fish. And I want you for a moment just to imagine what kind of discomfort he must have been experiencing. I don't know if you've ever experienced absolute darkness where there is absolutely no light not even the stars to light your way, no moon, but just absolute darkness. Just recently, there were a group of soccer players who were uh, essentially uh, had to be rescued in this cave in uh, Thailand. And one of the things that I found fascinating is that after they had been down in this cave for I forget how many days it was before they were rescued, one of the things they had to do before they could go back and be with their families was that they all had to be given sunglasses. And they had to be kept in dark rooms because it was going to take them time because they'd been in the darkness, utter darkness for so long that if they were to have just normal light in a room come on, their eyes could be permanently made blind. They had to be exposed to light gradually before they could see again. And so now these, these young men are wearing glass, sunglasses and are waiting to be restored to their family members because they can't see because of just the sheer uh, danger of light to them at this moment. So Jonah, he's in the belly of this fish. He's experiencing absolute perfect darkness. He's being squeezed in the esophagus of this giant fish. He's being burned by the acid of the gastric juices. He is smelling the foul, decaying food that is around him. And as if this nightmare couldn't be worse, he is experiencing the sense of being strangled as he finds weeds coming around his head and over his neck, pulling against him. It's the sheer hell that he has descended into. You can imagine that if he had passed out and he woke up in this condition and felt the cords strangling him and did not know where he was, he would imagine what? That he was in hell. That God had utterly abandoned him. Maybe that's one of the reasons it took him three days to pray. Maybe he thought it was already too late for him. But how, how did this man come from this place of absolute darkness to the very depths, as he says, of Sheol, among the depths of the mountains of the sea, to a place of great worship? Well, he had to do what we all do when we turn from rebellion to repentance. He had to change his direction. He had to go the other way. And in repentance, one of the things we recognize is that we have to take the steps that we went the wrong direction and all the way back to where we began a wrong and then begin to go the right direction with the Lord. That's the word picture for the Hebrew about repentance. It denotes this idea of returning and going along the very path from which you came to start going the, the correct way. We would think of the prodigal son. He went away from his father, and how did he come back to him? He had to go back through all the lands from which he had run from his father and come back all the way to his father to be restored. One of my favorite books, and a book I think everyone should read, is uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And in that book, 
uh, Christian and his friend Faithful are walking along and they see a path that is easier than the one that they've been walking on. They're walking on the path that's the straight and narrow path and their feet are becoming so cut up and bruised and their toes, they keep stubbing on the rocks that when they come along and they see a path called Bypass Meadow, they say, surely this must be an easier way to get to the, uh, the celestial city. And so they turn down and go that way. Now, Faithful, he, he didn't really want to go that way. He knew that the way was this difficult way. But he went along with Christian because Christian was a little more mature, had been a believer longer than him, and he goes along with Christian. And ultimately, they realize that it was a trap. And when they realize it, and they're trying to get back to the hard way, the hard path they were supposed to go on, it is too late. It is too late, and they are about to drown. And so they have to continue down by Pass Meadow. And as they go that way, they are caught by giant despair and taken and put into a prison. And they can't escape from this prison. They're locked there. And every day, giant despair comes in and he afflicts Christian and faithful. He beats them. He tortures them. He tells them that God has abandoned them, that God has forsaken them, that the celestial path will be something they can never return to. And it gets so dark that Christian even begins to consider killing himself. And it's only because of faithful's encouraging words that he remains that he stays the path. And what's fascinating is that eventually, while they're there in this time of darkness, they turn to God and they begin to pray together. And as they pray together, suddenly they're reminded of something, that along the way they've been given a key, a key of life. And they remember because of the darkness they'd forgotten. They reach into their vest jacket and find the key of life, and it opens the door so that they can escape from giant despair and go back to the hard path. And when they get back to it, even though their feet are being bruised, even though they're tripping and it's a hard way, they are so thankful to have escaped. And that's when John Bunyan says these powerful words. Then I thought, it is easier to get out of the way when we are in it than to get in it when we are out. It's kind of a hard way to say it, but what he's saying is it, is it is easy to go the wrong way. It is so hard to get back going the right way. It's where Jonah is. It's, it's where we end up so often. We, 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 in our own wisdom, decide we're going to go down this way. It looks like an easier way, and instead we end up in great difficulty and great trials and affliction. In the New Testament, we see Peter... Peter, he was the one who was so sure of himself, so confident. And yet, when he was sifted, Jesus said that he was going to allow Peter to be sifted so that he would be a more fit servant. And so, that night, on the night that he betrayed Christ, you recall, he stood next to a fire, and three different times he was asked, don't you know Christ? Aren't you one of his followers? And each time he denied Christ, and in fact, he began to even blaspheme on the third time. When Jesus found Peter again after the resurrection, and the disciples saw him, you remember in John, Peter jumped off the side of the ship, and he said, it's, you know, John says, it's the Lord, and Peter jumps off, and he swims to the, to the side of the land, and he goes there, and Jesus has made a fire, similar to the fire that... Peter had been standing next to when he denied Jesus. And now three times Jesus asked Peter these words, Do you love me? And each time Peter says, Of course I do. This restoration that happened with Peter is a similar restoration that's happening with Jonah. It's a similar restoration that happens with you and I. When we go into rebellion, when we or trusting in ourselves, in our own strength and wisdom, God brings to our lives a providential, perfectly tailor-made affliction to teach us how to be the people He needs us to be. See, Jonah is going to be a servant of grace and mercy because he's experienced it. Peter was able to be no longer a self-willed, self-reliant man given to his own strength, but he was going to be a humble servant who was able to preach Christ with brokenness 
and would make sure as he did so, God got all the glory. And God does the same thing to you and I when we go through affliction. God's teaching methods are perfect. Jonah was brought brought back into the path of God's presence from which he had slipped. He had to come back to the very point where he left off. And now God takes him from that place of darkness to such great bounding hope. You know, when I read through the, the second chapter, I'm sure you noticed that it sounded like I was reading a psalm, didn't it? It sounded like something you've perhaps heard, something that was very familiar. And what's amazing is that the reality is that Jonah is, is doing something that you and I do. Jonah had stored up in his heart many scriptures. And he memorized those passages and recalled them to mind. And then in this beautiful prayer, he weaves together a tapestry of various psalms and he begins to recite back to God the truth that he knew. Because when we look at verse 2 of the second chapter through verse 9, we recognize that Jonah is quoting different various psalms and applying them to his own self. He's teaching us a really important lesson. If you have come to a place where you have lost hope, if you've come to a place where you're experiencing darkness and you wonder if there's any hope for you, one of the first steps to coming back to a place of true faith is to begin to tell your soul the scriptures that you've memorized, to begin to read through the passages of scripture that are available to you and confess them to yourself. We know that the Psalms were a songbook for the congregation of Israel, and they're no less true of us today. Throughout the Psalms, we see men who are wondering where God is. They're wondering how they will be rescued in the midst of whatever adversity they're facing. And we find men who are just like us, turning to God and preaching to themselves truth and then experiencing comfort and deliverance and ultimately salvation. And so that's what Jonah is doing. In the, in the second verse, he says, I, I cried out of my distress to the Lord and He answered me. He was probably thinking of Psalm 3 where there the psalmist says, I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. In the third verse, he says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and your billows passed over me. He was probably thinking of the psalm, Psalm 88, where the sons of Korah recite, You have put me into the depths of the pit in the regions of the dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. I just want to stop for a moment and, and just recognize this. Who threw Jonah into the, to the sea? The sailors did. What, what caused Jonah to be thrown into the sea? His, his stubbornness, his unwillingness to repent. But what is Jonah recognizing now? Who cast Jonah into the sea? God did. What caused Peter to renounce Christ? His self-reliance, his own confidence. But when he was restored that restoration that took place was powerful. He knew that his restoration was all of God. In the same way, the sons of Korah, if you're not familiar with them, they, they were uh, a family who had rebelled against the Lord, had said to the uh, people of Israel, we need to have the same kind of prestige and the same position that Moses has. And God had to do something that was unusual. God caused this, the land to open up and swallow whole the entire family of those who were rebelling against God, and yet a few survived. These were the sons of Korah. And if you read through the Psalms, some of the greatest Psalms that you'll read that have to do with restoration, that have to do with reconciliation, are written by the sons of Korah. And so when Jonah is saying, Who put me here? Who cast me into the depths? the sea. I did this, but ultimately God did this. He reflected on 
one of the Psalms of the sons of Korah and applied it to his own soul, applied it to his own heart. That's wisdom that comes from God. That's not something any man would see. It's something that the Holy Spirit would have to teach. In the fourth verse, Jonah says, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again to your holy temple. That's amazing. That's a profound faith. What's changed about his circumstances or his situation? He had this available to him, the ability to worship God when he was on dry land. He had the ability to see the sea stilled if he had repented while he was on that ship. But he could not, and he did not, repent. And so now, by the grace of God, as he is turning from darkness, and listen, he's still in darkness. He's experiencing spiritual light. He's being brought back from literally the death to life. And he sees that he is not expelled from God's sight. Although he thought he could flee from the presence of the Lord, he knows that even now in the belly of the fish, I can worship God in His holy temple. God is everywhere. God can restore him. He is worshiping. And you know what? He probably couldn't bend his knees because he was so tightly wound up in this, this position in the midst of this fish. In Psalm 31, verse 22, David said, I have said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard my voice and my pleas of mercy when I cried to help for you. This is something I believe that Jonah was reflecting on when he said these, this powerful passage or verse about turning his sight back to God's holy temple. Despite the fact that David was in an inescapable situation where Saul was hounding him to kill him, David returned to the Lord and knew that only God would be his deliverer. Jonah recognized only God could save him. In verses 6 and 7 he says, You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. In verses 8 and 9, he he confesses the absurdity of his disobedience and even recognizes that his disobedience was idolatry. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. Now listen to this. That which I have vowed... I will pay. What faith. What a profound change. And then with this, with this change, and with this absolute assurance and confidence that he was being restored to God, he recalls to mind Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He says in his own, in his own words, salvation belongs is from the Lord. Looking at this passage of Scripture, C.H. Spurgeon said this, Jonah learned this sentence of good theology in a strange college. He learned it in the whale's belly at the bottom of the mountains with the weeds wrapped around his head. When he, was suppo- when he supposed that the earth with her bars was about him forever, most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction. Otherwise, we will not truly receive them. You know, this lesson is vital not just for us to understand what has happened with Jonah, but also to apply it to our own hearts. As I said, nothing in Jonah's circumstances to this point have changed. But his attitude, his heart, his trust, his hope was Profoundly changed. Previously, as Jonah rebelled, he experienced the path that led him to declension, depression, and despair. But now, put in this position of inescapable discomfort, the Lord leads Jonah from rebellion to repentance to reconciliation. Jonah climbs from the depths of despair to the heights of worship, and yet nothing has changed. 
I think that's a really important thing for us to think about. When we encounter trials of various kinds, our, our normal practice is to run from them. Our normal practice is to flee. We, we try to find any means that we can't employ to escape from difficulty. We love comfort. It's like a God to us. And as we see in the story of Jonah, if we are doing that, if God is bringing into our lives affliction... Now, again, this could be discipline for sin or it could just be training for holy living. Whatever it may be, you have to be willing to embrace it. You have to be willing to be taught by it. Because if if you don't, God is going to bring the next test. It's going to be harder. And if you try to get away from that one, He's going to bring another test. We saw with Jonah, God said to go. He said no. So he got on the ship, and then there was a great storm. And the storm got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And then he was ultimately thrown overboard, and God sent a fish. Now think about it. If he had to go back a few steps, which one would he prefer? To obey God the first time, or to be in the belly of this fish? But that's the means of grace that God will use to cause us to go in the path that He wills for us. God has promised that if you belong to Him, He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, your sanctification. And so in doing this, God will bring means of grace, even if they are increasingly uh, uncomfortable to us in order to make us the people we need to be, in order for Him to get the glory through the work that He does in our lives. And so when you enter into a trial, don't feel sorry for yourself. In fact, stop looking at yourself. Look to the Scripture. Don't look at your circumstances. Remember, happiness is just derived from the word happenstance. It changes. It's based on circumstance. But joy is eternal if it's, po- if it's given to God. And listen, take comfort. None of us do this well. If we did this well, we wouldn't have to be reminded repeatedly in the Scripture to trust in the Lord. We wouldn't have multiple passages of Scripture to go to that teach us why God brings affliction into our lives. And just for your sake, for your study, here are a few to look at. James 1, 2-3, Romans 5, 3-5, Hebrews 12, 5-11, 1 Peter 1, 6-7, and 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. If you want all of those, ask me after and I'll give them to you. But those are just a taste of some of the passages that the Scripture has to give us, to give us an understanding of why God lets evil happen. In fact, why God employs evil to bring about good. And that's what he's doing in the story of Jonah. And now our third point is to see the restoration of Jonah in verse 10. Now the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Once Jonah had made this confession, salvation is of the Lord, the work that God had been doing in his heart was complete. There was no room in the belly of the fish for this man. The work was ready for him to go out and to preach. This man's heart had been softened, it had been changed. He was being sent again and commissioned because God had restored him. And this again, think of this. If, if Jonah had not rebelled, we wouldn't probably know about this story. But because of his rebellion, we get to learn from it. And my encouragement to you is learn from the Scripture, learn from the discipline that God brings in the lives of others so that you don't have to experience the same kind of depths of affliction that Jonah did. I think all of us have a friend that we can look to and say, if he would just do this, it wouldn't be so hard for him. My encouragement to you is, yes, look at that, notice it, pray for them, but learn and don't be like that. So how did Jonah get to this point now where he's proclaiming salvation is of the Lord? Well, we saw it. He remembered who
who God is. He recited the scriptures to his heart. And his heart was profoundly changed. And so, rather than going down, he begins to go up. He was physically in the lowest place anyone could ever be. The heart of the ocean. And yet his heart was fixed upon the Lord. And he rose to the very heavenly places and worshipped God there. When we experience spiritual declension, when we forget God, when we follow our feelings, when we feel forsaken, we can look at the example of Jonah and remember the lengths that God will go to to preserve us and to protect us in order to bring God glory. This is encouraging, isn't it? If God went to these lengths to preserve the life of Jonah, can't you trust that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ? One commentator said it this way, this is Richard Phillips. The example of Jonah provides a choice example of God initiating salvation. As we look on the prophet turning his back to God and praying in renewed faith, we ask, what did Jonah do to save himself? What has Jonah contributed to this story? The answer is that Jonah contributed only his unbelief, his rebellion, his folly, and his sin. When Jonah was thrown into the waves, there was nothing he could do for his own salvation. That's true of you. It's true of me. I want you to turn over with me to Romans chapter 8 and hear these comforting verses about the salvation we have in God and Christ. Today, if you are hearing this word and you are experiencing affliction, again, my encouragement to you is to embrace it. Don't try to flee from it. Embrace it and ask God to give you the wisdom to learn from it. Ask God to give you a heart that is willing to hold on to Him rather than this world. Ask Him to give you a persevering faith because ultimately, if you're in Christ, that is the purpose of this difficulty. If you're hearing this this morning and you don't even know what I'm talking about because you don't experience this sort of difficulty or this kind of affliction, you really need to examine your soul and ask if you're in the way, if you're following Christ. Because the Scripture makes it clear, if you're in Christ Jesus, you will suffer. But the hope that we have, we see... In Romans chapter 8, and I want to read starting in verse 28 to the end. We know that God uses all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom, or these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just it is written... For your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this example of
transformation. I'm always comforted when we read the scripture and we, we see that it's filled up with sinners. We see it's it's filled with people who are in desperate need of an unchanging God's grace and kindness. The matter is, if it were up to us, we would find a, find a way to you or a salvation that was cheaper, that was easier, and gave us some kind of claim that we had done something. But the reality is, is that the, salva- the salvation that comes from God, the salvation that is from the Lord, is something that you do not share the glory in. God, you get all of the glory in our salvation. You get all of the glory in our reconciliation when we fall away. You get the, the glory in reconciling sinners to yourself every step of the way. The fact that we know that we are in darkness is because you've brought the light of your truth into our lives and revealed to us the darkness. If it was up to us, we would be like those players, uh, soccer players who were trapped in a mountain walking in darkness with no hope. We would be like Jonah in the depths of the sea thinking that we were already dead. But by your kindness and grace, Lord, you awakened in Jonah life. You brought to him light in the midst of darkness and you brought him life that led to a reconciliation that brought about a profound Change not only in his life, but in the lives of every person who heard him. Lord, I pray that with anticipation and with joy, Lord, we would look to your scripture, know that you alone are our deliverer, and that we would desire to put into practice these things, put into practice this trust, this hope, and that we ourselves would experience the profound comfort that comes when we truly believe and trust and know that salvation is from the Lord. Amen.